You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Breaking, breaking, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitman declares gay sex club essential business, endorses glory holes, must credit PJ Media. PJ Media is a conservative news slash right-wing outrage slash alternative reality website. So that's a lie. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitman has not endorsed glory holes. I have, more in theory than in practice, but Gretchen Whitman, the governor of Michigan, she has not endorsed sticking your dick in a hole in a wall and getting a blowjob from the stranger on the other side. But PJ Media would like you to believe that Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitman personally ordered Club Taboo, a sex club in the back of a sex toy shop in Lansing, Michigan, the state's capital, that she personally ordered Club Taboo to remain open while yanking licenses out of the hands of God-fearing small business owners who just want to make an honest living. Or as PJ Media put it, Whitman allowed a gay swingers club with glory holes to operate right under her nose in Lansing, while at the same time aiming her business-killing death ray on 77-year-old barber Carl Mankey for giving haircuts. Do I need to mention that Whitman did no such thing? Or did identifying PJ Media as a right-wing outrage shop clear that up already? Carl Mankey, the barber whose license got death raid, got his license death raid after he made a show of reopening his shop. The media was invited to come. Armed members of the Michigan militia stood guard outside ready to shoot cops, I guess. Because blue lives don't matter anymore. Please make a note of it. Anyway, the antics outside Mankey's shop brought him to the attention of the authorities, which was his intention. And the authorities then moved to shut Mankey's shop back down. Because there's a pandemic raging. 50,000 people in Michigan have already been infected and more than 5,000 are dead. Governor Whitman wasn't aware that Club Taboo was still open for business, although all those glory holes were operating right under her nose. The media and armed members of the Michigan militia weren't gathering inside or outside Club Taboo. But as soon as authorities learned Club Taboo was open in violation of the state's stay-at-home orders, they shut it down too. But that didn't happen. Club Taboo wasn't shut down until after PJ Media started asking the hard questions. Questions like, where are you more likely to get a disease? At a barber shop or in a sex dungeon? Huh. Well, it's hard to assess the relative risks here. More people probably get haircuts in Lansing in any given week than slip into club taboo for a blowjob. And while not at all safe, it's probably safer to have some stranger breathing all over your dick than it is to have some barber breathing right in your face. And places like club taboo rarely have more than two or three people in them at any given time. But one hairstylist in Missouri who had COVID-19 and went to work at a salon managed to expose 91 people, 84 clients and seven coworkers to the virus. So the framing here, basically PJ Media wants us to believe, well, not us, not me, not you. They want their idiot readers to believe that the state's Democratic governor is so beholden to the gay lobby that she refused to shut down a gay sex club until she had to, which is ridiculous. Keeping sex clubs open during pandemics isn't high on the list of any gay political organization's goals. You could say we learned our lesson the last time. 
And most of the people who patronize establishments like Club Taboo, which is housed in the back of a dirty bookstore, don't identify as gay. You're far likelier to encounter a dues-paying member of the Michigan militia in the darkroom of a dirty bookstore in Lansing than you are a dues-paying member of the human rights campaign. I did a bit of digging and didn't find any mention of COVID-19 infections being traced back to Club Taboo. That doesn't mean there weren't any. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence and all that. If a member of the Michigan militia came down with COVID-19 after visiting Club Taboo, they probably claim they got it at church. And it does seem pretty easy to catch at church. More than 40 people who recently attended a church service in Frankfurt, Germany, tested positive for COVID-19. Forbes reports that in Arkansas, nearly half the congregation of a small rural church, dozens and dozens of people, contracted the virus after attending services on one Sunday in March. A church in Texas had to close after the virus spread, and in Virginia, and I'm just quoting from Forbes here, not taking any delight in this, a pastor who held church services throughout March against the advice of health officials and told congregants he would continue unless I am in jail or the hospital, died from COVID-19 in April. The data aren't all in yet, but if you're forced by Governor Whitman to choose between an anonymous blowjob and a sermon, the blowjob in the sex club at the glory hole from the Michigan militia member looks like the far safer bet. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and in the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, kink educator Blackson joins us to take some of your kink questions. And I want to remind everybody that we are doing a Savage Lovecast live stream. We often do Savage Lovecast live where we go to theaters in different cities all around the country, but we can't do that right now. So we are doing Savage Lovecast live stream on June 4th. I'll be taking your questions live, giving answers. Nancy will be there. It's going to be really fun. I will be visiting you in your homes. And it is a fundraiser. Tickets cost $10, but it is a fundraiser for Northwest Harvest, which helps to supply food banks all across my home state of Washington. I am matching, Terry and I are matching personally, the first $2,000 in ticket sales and donations so that we can double the amount that we're raising for Northwest Harvest doing the Savage Love live stream. Again, that's June 4th. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events for tickets. And speaking of glory holes. Hi, Dan. I was calling to share a quarantine story. My wife and I, we've been married for almost 20 years now. It's evolved in different ways. One of the things that I have enjoyed doing more recently is going out to parties that involve uh, glory holes. I was recently talking to my wife about these are not going on anymore, about kind of one of the reasons I like about them is that it's not an aggressive act maybe on women so much, which is how some people might perceive them, but sort of like giving yourself to whatever happens on the other side. So we found some old bed sheets from our kids uh, that we weren't going to use anymore cut a hole in them and I uh, sewed up uh, an end, set up a curtain rod and we set up a little uh, spot in our house where we have a little bit of a, a little glory hole and I found that as a very fun uh, activity in, uh, in recent months. Thank you for calling in and sharing your very fun and very creative quarantine sex story. Props to you and the wife for having the kind of honest open relationship where you can talk about this stuff and get creative if you are deprived of the stuff that you enjoy Getting elsewhere are usually allowed to get elsewhere. And when you say giving yourself to whatever happens on the other side, yeah, that is literally what you're doing when you pop your dick through a glory hole. That is why I haven't ever popped my dick through a glory hole because 
I don't trust people on the other side of a wall that I can't see as much as you do. Thank you so much for calling. If you want us to play your quarantine sex story on the top of next week's show, give us a buzz 206-302-2064 and share your story. Hey, Dan. I was calling about, actually, with my own question regarding another question you had last week about the uh, poor man who lost his leg and the wife who had lost her libido, relating her, at least her attraction to the man after that. In terms of, I guess, options for what they can do to resolve this, I never hear you talk about this, but what about a sex doll? I have one, and um, I use it, and I find it meets the needs that I'm not getting met from my wife. I just feel like it's um, something you never talk about, and I just wonder what your opinion and the your and the, your audience's opinion about this, because I feel like it's not something... You and people in general never talk about. I guess this feels the lack of intimacy or something. People just don't like the fact that it's just a piece of whatever. And, and yet I get my amusement from it. It's an option, I think. And the other thing is, I guess, in terms of what I should be looking out for in terms of materials for these, these dolls I get. I just want to know if uh, there's a way to test them to be sure that they're the, made of the material that's safe. I know that it will... TPE and silicone are supposed to be safe. I'm just wondering if there's any way to have them tested or know or some way to know that they're, these materials are safe or where they say they are. Uh, because, well, if they come from overseas, I never know if it's legitimate or not. Just, yeah, I don't think that cheating is always the option that people put it out to. I don't feel like I want to cheat or feel like the need to cheat with her, go out with the sex worker. It's just, or anybody else, it's just... I just can't do it. Why don't I ever recommend full-size human sex dolls? Well, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't seem like a realistic option for many people considering that they start at $6,000. I recommend a couple of couples counseling sessions to someone. I recommend – or we have Erica Moen from Ojoy oh Sex Toy on. She recommends a vibrator that costs 100 bucks, and I get a 1,000 emails from people telling me that we're being – classist and not everybody has the money to go see a couple's counselor for a session or two or invest in a hundred dollar vibrator that might last for 10 or 20 years. The idea that I could just casually toss off to people, hey, there's this $6,000 and up sex toy that you might want to give a chance. Yeah, I'm probably not going to go there, not even just for the cost, but also for a lot of people, the idea of their partner having a spare having a Stepford girlfriend in the basement that they occasionally visit is going to be off-putting. So props to your wife that that's not an issue for her and that she's happy that you have this full-size sex toy into which you can insert yourself. The only real question you have besides why don't I ever recommend that is how do you figure out what's in your sex toy? Well, you have to go with a reputable supplier. You have to go with some company that makes a particular sex toy and has a good reputation and that assures its customers that indeed it's only using silicone and then trust unless you want to cut a little bit off that sex toy and send it to an independent lab to have it tested, which is what the wonderful sex toy shop Smitten Kitten in Minnesota started doing a few years ago. They tested sex toys and found that some of the companies that were less reputable were claiming their products were all silicone or all safe materials, and they were not. But the FDA doesn't regulate 
sex toys. A lot of them are produced overseas and on the fly, and it's a buyer beware situation. Go to badvibes.org for more information about sex toy testing. And if you want to double check now, all these years later, after you've spent this money on your very expensive sex doll, to see if it's made of whatever it was the manufacturer assured you it was made of, you're going to have to find an independent lab and send them a tow. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old in the Northwest. I was talking to a long-term family friend and his brother over voice chat, and it was going well. His brother, he asked, does she know? And I was like, do I know what? And he kind of chuckled, and he was like, send her the link. Send it to her. And he sent me a link. It was of my uncle's long-term girlfriend and a porn video. And it sprang up this conversation like, I bet he doesn't know. I'm just waiting for a time to bring it up. I don't know how. I told your mom. It's circulating in the family. Family knows. And my question is, should anyone be bringing that up? Sex work is work. And I'm sure he knows. I just don't think he knows we know. And is there an appropriate way or time to even bring that up to somebody? Should I tell my family friend to cram it down and pretend they didn't see anything? On the one hand, sex work is work. Like you say, and work shouldn't come with some terrible stigma attached to it. Sex work is work. It's a job. Some people do it. Some people enjoy it. Some people don't enjoy it, want to do something else and hopefully can move out of it quickly. But sex work is work and people who do sex work shouldn't be discriminated against, shamed, stigmatized. If we lived in a world where people who did sex work weren't shamed or stigmatized or discriminated against or disowned by their families – there would be no issue here. You could say to your uncle, oh, I saw your girlfriend's um, work. Like I saw your girlfriend waiting tables at that place I like. Or I saw your girlfriend being an architect and building a building. It wouldn't matter. But because there is this stigma and shame, it matters. And so I kind of want to get in a time machine and punch in the face the first person in your family who found the video and started circulating it to other family members to determine what needed to be done. Nothing needed to be done. The person who saw the video first needed to shut the fuck up and click on some other porn video that they'd rather watch in place of the porn video featuring a relative. But now that the whole fucking family knows, now that every friends know, yeah, your uncle probably needs to know, needs to know all you all know, needs to know all you all are fucking assholes with no respect who don't know when to close a browser tab. So yeah, maybe he needs to know or maybe you should do what you had the impulse to do, which is tell all of your relatives to fuck the fuck off and cram it down and pretend not to know this thing that they really didn't need to know in the first place and that it might be an emotional burden for your uncle to know you know or be told that you know. The odds that his girlfriend, if she has a ton of videos up online, if this is what she does for work, is hiding that from him and has been hiding that from him for the entirety of their long-term relationship are very slim. So going to him and saying, oh my God, your girlfriend's doing porn, isn't going to be telling him anything that he doesn't know. It's just going to 
embarrass him potentially and humiliate him and might piss him the fuck off. And I'm really torn because on the one hand, you know, you should have just closed that fucking browser tab, the very first one of you who found it. On the other hand, it's nothing that she should be ashamed of. And if all y'all know, maybe he has a right to know all y'all know. So it can be addressed. And maybe he's stressed out all these years about the day that you all find out and the problems it might create. And if you've all found out and it didn't create really any problem except the burden of knowing and you want to shift that burden of knowing onto his shoulders, maybe better if you told him. But the ideal solution here is the unworkable one is the Dan Savage jumps in a time machine and finds the person who found that first video and slams their laptop shut and breaks all their fingers. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm an early 30s male from Alberta, Canada, looking for some family advice. I have taken your advice from a previous episode where the caller's father was getting into a new relationship quite quickly after her mother died and was having an issue with Christmas dinner. I have a similar yet slightly different question around this topic. My mother passed away from colon cancer when I was 13 and my sister was 11 in January of 2001. It was a difficult time for us as her death to us was unexpected, while my father had known she was terminal for at least six months before she passed. It was made more difficult when my father decided to move on and date our current stepmother after two months and then have her move in with us three months after that, eventually getting married in the fall the year following. I heard your advice from episode 619 and have come to terms with the fact that he was ready for a relationship a lot sooner than we were because of him being a caregiver and not a spouse slash partner. My problem arises rather recently. My father is now quite ill, though not a terminal illness, and things have been rocky in the past with our stepmother, but are now generally smooth. I have found a love letter he wrote to our stepmother in July of 2014, where in the first line he writes, we have been together for more than 14 years and married for 12. Whilst the marriage checks out, my sister and I were under the impression that he started seeing her two months after our mother died in March of 2001. Now it seems obvious that they had met before our mother passed and were well into a relationship at this point. I am now mature enough to understand open relationships, but I don't have any evidence to prove it, as my mother kept a pretty detailed diary in the year before her death and didn't mention this at all. How do I approach this with them? It seems like a pretty huge lie to cover up that they hoped would never come up in the last 20 years. Now that it is potentially almost in the open, what do we do? How do we handle it? You have your mother's diary from the last year of your mother's life. And there's nothing in there about being in an open marriage. There's nothing in there about her being aware that her husband was seeing someone else. And we can infer two things from that, that she didn't know also that she wasn't in distress about her husband seeing someone else. Whatever your father was doing, obviously your father was dating your stepmother for at least a year before your mother passed. Whatever your father was doing, he was discreet about. Discreet about to such an extent that your mother never became aware that however many years into their marriage, he was perhaps doing what he needed to do to stay married and stay sane, that he was perhaps seeing other people. Maybe your father and mother were headed toward divorce. I imagine that would be in her diary, though, if that were true. And then your mother got sick and your father took care of your mother. And instead of informing his two young children, age 13 and 11 at the time, about this 
full, messy, complicated nature of the beginning of this relationship and the end of his previous marriage, his widowhood, the death of your mother. He just waited a couple of months to introduce you to this woman and then three more months to move her in. That seems like it, it seemed to you at the time, I'm sure, and it seems to me perhaps now from this vantage point as a little fast, but he rolled it out in such a way so as not to complicate your memory of his relationship with your mother and perhaps keeping this from you successfully all these years. And now because you read this letter, and I'd be curious to know how you came into possession of this letter and whether reading the letter was a violation of your father's privacy. But now because you read this letter, you know something that you didn't know and perhaps didn't need to know and would be better off not knowing. You can pretend not to know. You can will yourself to just accept that marriages are long and complicated and there are sometimes periods in a long-term relationship. You don't know what the state of your parents' emotional relationship was at that time or their sexual relationship was at that time. But long and complicated marriages, there are sometimes affairs. There are sometimes accommodations that have to be made and sacrifices that have to be made. I don't know. You could have this conversation with your dad. You may hear from him that rather than leave your mother, and this was before she got sick, he began to see this other woman, rather than leave your mother and abandon her with a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old, he did something that was morally compromising and complicated and amounted to a betrayal in service of, he thought at the time, the greater good of keeping your home together and keeping your parents together while you were young and vulnerable. Who knows? Maybe he was planning after you were both 18 and out of the house to make an honest man of himself retroactively and leave your mother and marry his girlfriend. There's all sorts of things that could have been going on. Is now the time to process those things with your desperately ill father? If you must, for your own peace of mind, go for it. You know what you now know and you can't unknow it. You can, however, refrain from assuming the worst about your father and the worst about your stepmother and perhaps allow for relationships are long, marriages are complicated and often messy, that obviously your parents' marriage was more complicated and whatever was going on in the last years of your mother's life was more complicated than you knew at the time or would have benefited from knowing at that time. You say your father kept this secret all these years. What would you rather have had him do? Bring this woman home two months after your mother's death and say, this is my girlfriend. We've been dating for two years, just so you know the full truth, just so I'm not keeping any secrets or hiding anything from you. Would that have been better for where you were at at that moment? Yeah, it would have been better if your father hadn't been cheating on your mother, but we don't live in the world where your father wasn't cheating on your mother. And your father, rather than making a full confession, rather than burdening you as small children, 13 and 11, with the full 360-degree transparent awareness of what the fuck was going on, spared you that and would have successfully spared you that all your life if you hadn't have found and read that fucking letter. You know, the thing about snooping, whether you're snooping on an intimate partner or snooping on a parent, is sometimes you find out things that you can't unknow and you never needed to know. Sometimes you find out things you needed to know and had a right to know. That is why I'm one of the few people out there who will tell people that you know, snooping retroactively can be justified in certain circumstances. You find out that your partner is a serial adulterer and is being unsafe and reckless and snorting meth. Yeah, 
you snooped, you found that out. Okay, the snooping is permissible in retrospect, retroactively. But sometimes you snoop and you find out a thing that it sucks to know and you didn't need to know. And you wouldn't know if you hadn't snooped. And you need to take some responsibility for your mental anguish. And rather than offload your mental anguish onto your father who is ill, you just suck it up. Hi, Dan. I am a 36-year-old non-binary queer person um, living in Philly. And I am in a long-term non-monogamous relationship. I'm about to move in with my anchor partner, And we are trying to figure out at what phase of the pandemic that we can date other people. So right now, we kind of have our other dating on pause. And I'm sure there's a lot of other poly and ethically non-monogamous people that have the same question. Another layer to this is I have severe asthma. So I am high risk during this pandemic. And so do I have to wait until there's a vaccine to go fuck other people or... (laughs) Can we do it in the yellow phase? Do we have to like only date people who live alone? Hey, it's Dan Savage returning your call. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I looked at my caller ID and I was like, I wonder if that's Dan Savage. It couldn't possibly be. (laughs) Whenever you don't answer the phone, anybody out there listening, whenever you don't answer the phone because you don't recognize the number, it's me. You missed my call. Thanks for calling me back. Uh, My pleasure. Did you listen to the opening of last week's show? I talked about Dutch Health Authority's advice for single people around dating and sex, that sex is, you know, necessary and people are going to seek it out and telling people they can't have it doesn't prevent people from having it and, uh, you know, ups the likelihood that people will seek it out more recklessly. Uh, And so they were advising people to find someone, vet that person, get a good idea about that person's, uh, you know, how many contacts they have because however many contacts they have increases the risk that if you two get up get together for sex that you may wind up exposed i guess the same advice would apply to people in poly relationships who want to have sex with other people but right now to me doesn't seem like the time to start dating because dating to me implies not seeking out one other person for you to fuck around with or one other person for you and your partner to fuck around with. But, you know, picking chocolates from the box and sampling them and deciding maybe down the road which one you might want to partner with. If indeed you and your partner in your uh, open relationship are going to have other partners as opposed to just, you know, other sexual sort of – oh, God, why did I say sexual in that way? <laughs> other sexual contacts, you know, one-offs with others. So it would help to know what it is that you're seeking before I could give you advice about when it would be safe to seek it in this environment? Yeah, I think, well, you know, I so I'm in a long-term, like, kind of poly relationship, and me and my primary partner aren't seeing anybody else right now, um, and I'm high risk, and he's not. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're trying to navigate, you know – at what point can we see other people for sex um, while also, you know, not being, I don't want to say, you know, we can't have sex with anybody else in 2020. You know, it's, it's hard to predict what is going to happen with the vaccine. But as someone with severe asthma, how can, um, you know, I advise my partner on the risks that he can take too? Because, you know, we're about to move in together and essentially, and we are only seeing each other in quarantine. Right. So essentially... The risks that he is taking or would take if he, if he could um, are also risks that I am taking and that I am more likely to die from COVID. <laughs> Which and is so I obviously don't want to die. <laughs> nobody wants to die and we don't want you to die. And he had 
ask, like, well, what if I want to hook up with somebody that lives alone and has been quarantined for the past two months like we have, you know, is, and that's kind of more of a gray area. I'm kind of not sure what to say. I'm like, I don't know. Are they somebody that we know well? Okay, that we can wait, wait, um, slow down. You know, if that somebody you know who's been quarantining for a couple of months and lives alone had to go to the grocery store two days ago, yeah, to, to get food or had food delivered and touched the bag that was maybe touched by someone who had it, they could have the virus now despite having quarantined successfully for two months. And if your boyfriend goes and fucks them, it's just a real risk that can't be eliminated that if he is meeting up with someone else who may have an incentive to lie to him about whether they've been quarantining or not, if they're hungry for his deck, there's risk there and there's no way to eliminate that risk. And if you're at high risk of dying, if you guys should guess wrong or trust wrong in someone else, yeah, it may be a risk that it's not rational to run at the moment. And I always feel, I feel very conflicted about this. You know, we have Tristan Taramino on the show, you know, at the beginning of this crisis, she wrote opening up and has a terrific podcast herself, sex out loud. And is an advocate for open polyamorous relationships. And she came on and we announced together, you know, we held hands and jumped off this cliff together, even though that violated social distancing, sort of, we announced together <laughs> that polyamory for the moment is canceled, except virtually. Yeah. As we move forward, and it may be a long time before we have a vaccine, just telling people they can't or shouldn't won't prevent pe some people from taking that risk. You know, you gotta, we've got to find a way to channel people's desires so that they can act on them in the safest way possible. And I think, you know, if you, I, I would advise you if you guys were going to take these risks, and they are risks, to be as safe as possible, which means if there's somebody that else that you're interested in or he's interested in, and you're going to have to have what amounts to a long cyber courtship before you take the risk of getting together <laughs> physically. Establish trust. Not that trust is a vaccine. It doesn't make you immune. Es establish trust so that when that person says, we've been quarantining for this amount of time, we're asymptomatic, I have only these numbers of contacts with others outside my home, mm -hmm. that you can believe that you're not being bullshitted because somebody wants the D or the P in your case. Yeah. I think it's, it's tough as a sex positive, you know, yeah. non-monogamous person to tell your partner, Hey, I don't know when you can have sex with other people again. And because it's, it's not because I don't want him to date. It's just because I, I don't want to die. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, talking about when that would be safe, I'm kind of like, I don't know when Philly goes into the green, we're still in the red lockdown phase. Right. Um, so kind of like looking at the future, like at what point in the phased reopening can you have sex with people that you don't live with? And I don't think any of us have a good answer yet. I certainly don't, which is why I'm all over the place on, on this question. You know, I, I, I recognize people's basic, not just need, but right to, to physical intimacy, sexual expression, sexual fulfillment, sexual contact. But there is now an added degree of risk and an added degree of difficulty when it comes to mitigating for that risk. You know, HIV, talk about it a lot. HIV, I was out there having sex in the 80s when there was no effective treatment. Mm -hmm. But the risks were easier to manage. Not that people who were attempting to manage those risks of contracting HIV then didn't, you know, wind up getting infected and dying in some cases. They did. 
I could have. You know, I was a couple of broken condoms away or maybe one broken condom away from being infected myself and dying in 1992. But I lucked out and I recognize that there's a certain amount of luck built into that too, into surviving a pandemic, the one I survived. There's going to be a certain amount of luck and risk going forward when people start having sex despite this pandemic. And yeah. and the, the trouble for someone in my position, you have to give people sex advice. Is you, you know, <laughs> I've always said that sex is the one area where we talk about risk as if it means you shouldn't do this thing. There's risk inherent in getting on an airplane before COVID. People go snowboarding and slam into trees and die. People eat chicken salad and die, right? There's risk to chicken yeah. salad. And we don't say, you know, the only safe chicken salad is the chicken salad you don't eat. We say refrigerate that shit, you know, wash the <laughs> counter after you cut up the chicken, be safe and responsible and, and mitigate those risks and, and minimize them. But we don't tell people not to eat chicken salad. But with sex, we tell people don't do it because of sex phobia and, and, and sex irrationality, really, that sex is something trivial and, and as opposed to a basic human need and drive for 99% of us. And so, yeah, there's a certain point where people are going to start doing this and, and to mitigate the risks of COVID, particularly for I have asthma, you have asthma, particularly for people like us who are in open relationships and polyamorous relationships, to mitigate those risks, it's going to be more of a tightrope walk. It's going to be harder than it was to mitigate the risks of contracting HIV in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, I also was like, hey, maybe we just need to wait and see. Like, we need to get to the green phase and, like, see how it is. Right. Like, you know, we also don't know. And when we get to the green phase, people are still going to be contracting COVID and dying in the absence of an effective treatment or a vaccine. So just getting to green doesn't mean jump on all the dick. Getting to green (laughs) and we'll only get to green and we'll only stay in green if people continue to be smart and careful. And I think some people have it in their heads that once we get to green – There are no rules and we can go back to how it was. And that is probably not going to be the case for a long time. And I said all that about like, I'm the pro risk guy. And I think, you know, take assuming some risk for sex is legitimate and people should be able to have sex even in the the face of risk. And yet I want to tell you, and I am going to tell you that you and your partner should just fuck each other right now and talk about fucking other people. You can talk to other people online You can meet up with Mm -hmm. other people online virtually and have four ways. On Zoom, you can have 400 ways. (laughs) But right now, you said you're in Philly. You're in a red zone. Yeah, right now. I understand the impulse to want to have sex with other people. Honest to God, I do. But right now, I can't and you shouldn't. I can't tell you you can't. I'm I'm not in charge of your pussy in that way or your partner's dick. Yeah. But you shouldn't. Well, once we get a vaccine, I want to make out with half of Philadelphia. I'm ready. But, <laughs> you know, once we get but a I'm going to wait until then. Once you, we get a vaccine, I will make out with the other half of Philadelphia so that all of Philadelphia <laughs> is made out with immediately, pronto. <laughs> but that will be after we get a vaccine. Awesome. Thank yeah, for- I really appreciate the advice. I think you confirming what I was already thinking. Yeah. Yeah, one asthmatic to another. I think you should err on the side of caution at this moment. Err on the side of not monogamy the choice, but monogamy the reality. Yeah. Yeah, I already told I told our couple therapists that even Dan Savage said that uh, polyamory was canceled right now. So I, I've been listening hard to all of your answers to be like, <laughs> what are people doing? <laughs> or not doing. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Hey, Dan. 
I recently accidentally connected with somebody on Tinder who I usually wouldn't connect with. I like to use Tinder to make new friends. I also like to flirt with girls on Tinder. It's just kind of a fun pastime. But somehow I matched with this person who identified as non-binary with she, her pronouns, and they presented as pretty masculine, but obviously said that they were non-binary, used she, her pronouns, but generally isn't really like my type. I usually go for straight looking kind of, I would say like a share from Clueless type, like really super femmy. And so this was just like not really my type of person. I'm not usually attracted to this kind of person, but I am so worried that I am going to say the wrong thing. I've probably already said the wrong thing here. I don't know how to tell somebody I'm not really attracted to you, especially when it's like, I don't really want to be with somebody with a dick. Um, I also don't, yeah, I just don't know like what the right thing is to say in this situation by still being supportive and an ally and not using the wrong language or hurting anybody's feelings. Do I just ghost next time? Because I think I, t- I like put my foot in my mouth um, and I, I just feel like I need help here. Hopefully somebody can help me out with the correct language and what I should do in the future if this happens. Just un- unconnect. What do I do? We'll open this one up to the callers, but I'd just like to say nobody is obligated to like Dick. And I say that as a fan. Nobody likes Dick more than I like Dick, but I know that there are people out there who don't like Dick. And that's sad for some people who have Dicks, who are attracted to people or like to date people or get with people who just aren't into Dicks. But not being into Dicks is a perfectly legitimate sexual orientation. And you don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed of not liking Dick. When you find yourself talking with somebody, you know, you meet them on Tinder or wherever and you determine that you're not interested in them for whatever reason, you say, hey, it was nice talking to you, but I'm going to take a pass. I'm not interested. If that person demands to know exactly why you aren't interested in them, if they want to have an argument about it, they're not entitled to an answer. You don't need someone's permission to move on. And if somebody starts to argue with you about why exactly you're not interested in them, I think that's just a block and blocking ain't ghosting. You're blocking someone who's being unpleasant. You're blocking someone who isn't taking no for an answer and not taking no for an answer is a much worse offense than not being into dicks. So you can just tell her that you're not into dick. And if she freaks the fuck out, that's unpleasant, but too bad. You didn't do anything in my opinion, wrong. All that said, sometimes we do need to challenge our preconceptions about what is and isn't attractive. Sometimes we are attracted to, and I don't say this to say to lesbians, you have to suck dick or to say to gay men, you have to eat pussy or to say to straight guys, you have to suck dick or anything. But sometimes we move through our young lives getting with the people, not that we want to get with in particular, not with all of the different kinds of people we might enjoy getting with, but we get with the people that we've been told we ought to get with and should be attracted to. That can shape us in a way that limits and distorts our options. And so we do want to interrogate our own desires because we may find we're attracted to more and different types of people. 
but racially and people different classes and socioeconomic backgrounds. There's a lot of conditioning, social conditioning around class that needs to be challenged. And a lot of it gets sort of pounded into our erotic imaginations in a very weird and distorting way. So it's not just about gender, but about everything. You need to be thoughtful. You need to interrogate your desires just to make sure that they're actually yours. But once you have, once you've determined that, you don't have to apologize for being attracted to the people that you're attracted to. You don't. And you're allowed to make it clear to people that you're not attracted to, that you are not attracted to them. And you don't have to win an argument. That person is free to challenge you if they think you're being a bigot or an asshole. And you're free to take that in, process it, decide whether there's any germ of truth to it, and then move the fuck on to someone you are attracted to who isn't arguing with you about (laughs) the legitimacy of your desire. Hi, Dan. I recently entered a relationship where I guess I have a slave, basically just someone that I'm playing with who has his dick in a cage and gave me the keys and has been referring to himself as my slave. And my question is, I guess, maybe um, more for your listeners of color. I feel super weird referring to him as my slave. We're both white, but yeah, I guess just like in the community or people of color that are in, I guess, like the master slave scene or community, I don't even know what you would call it. I guess how, yeah, how do people feel about that? I feel kind of weird referring to him as that. I've been saying like my servant or my sub, but yeah. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Blackson, whose pronouns are they, them, is a Philadelphia-based, non-monogamous, queer, BDSM educator of color when they aren't on Instagram at Kinky Black Educator, writing about subjects that include topics such as the antithesis to humiliation play or dominant submissives. They can be found honing their shibari skills through erotic photography. They also love, and we'll get to this later, rubber ducks. Hey, Blackson, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today to help me out with this one. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've often wondered about this this myself uh, and wondered when worried that perhaps a woke segment of the kink community might come for the term slave. And I had heard from some other people that they were uncomfortable using that term uh, who weren't people of color but would wor- but worried how people of color would feel about it. It's clearly what this caller is worried about it. I know you don't speak for all kinky people of color, but is it a problem when people use the word slave in sex play in this way? Uh, I would say both yes and no. The reason why I would say yes and no is the the knowledge that is like required to really know like how much like weight that word has. I say it is a problem when you don't when you don't have that knowledge when you don't adhere to consent. But on the other side, no, because that is an opportunity to reclaim a word and to change narratives as well. Uh, So when it all comes down to it, I think it's important to, I think it's really good and awesome that people are considering the absolute weight that that word holds. I mean, we all know that words hold power and making sure that we are, you know, really cognizant of, you know, just what that means to people like myself is like super, super important. Is it a word that you feel comfortable using in play? I don't. And the reason being is because as important as consent is, I have to, you know, respect what people consent to mm-hmm. while also considering, you know, my own comfort. You know, if I'm I'm comfortable with that, if someone else is comfortable with that, if that's the way that they prefer 
to be referred to, um, but other people might not be comfortable with using that word or being referred to in that way. Or referring to someone else in that way. I think it's important to highlight here that, you know, as the top in this, you know, relationship that this caller has now with a sub, she's allowed to have limits. If she's not comfortable using this term, she isn't required to use it just because it's the sub's preferred term. They can come up with something else. It's not just about you know, a sub's limits. It's also about a, a top's limits. If there's something the top isn't comfortable doing or saying, the top isn't required to do or say those things just to be the best possible top for that sub. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, how to look out for submissives and, and, and bottoms and, you know, the ways that we should be um, to submissives and bottoms and so on and so forth. But um, there isn't much conversation in the way of just how we should treat tops, how we should respect tops, how consent is just as important for the bottom or submissive as it is uh, for the top. And that's really important to remember in the fact that, you know, uh, consent is a, a multifaceted concept with, with, with many, many facets, you know, from power dynamics on and so forth. And I think that you know, understanding that allows us to, you know, keep each other's best interests at heart. And I, I think it's all right to acknowledge that, you know, the, the sub, particularly in a scene that involves restraint, is more vulnerable, maybe emotionally more vulnerable, may feel a kind of undertow uh, to submit to things that they're not into because they don't want to disappoint the dom. And it's really important to have honest conversations outside of those roles. But both people participate in that negotiation. It's not just the top negotiating with the sub about what the sub wants to experience or endure. It's also about the sub negotiating with the top about their interests, their desires, their comfort levels. And that sometimes gets lost in this conversation because we center the sub. And I think we should center the sub in a way because the sub is more vulnerable. But the top is also a participant and can be traumatized in sex, doing things that they don't want to do or don't feel comfortable doing. Even if you saw a snapshot of it, you would think that the top was completely in control and completely in charge and not always the case. Absolutely. I think that, you know, because of depictions in media, uh, especially that a lot of individuals um, often misconstrue uh, what BDSM is about um, only viewing it as its at, at its surface, it has it has some great depth, and I I, I think that uh, what's missed out on is the importance of cooperative creation. You know, when you when you're doing BDSM ethically, creating your scenes together, creating the the look of your relationship, creating the feel of your relationship together cooperatively is important to remember. This isn't just you know, for the person who has, you know, taken a position as the dom or the top to just simply dictate what will occur within the confines of that BDSM relationship. I want to drill down for just another second on issues the question raised. You know, obviously this is, these are two white people and they're using the word slave or the sub would like to use the word slave in this erotic context. And the dom is worried about not hurting the feelings of people of color because there aren't any people of color in the room when they play, but normalizing or, or defanging this term in a way that's disrespectful to its, its history. And she's self-conscious about that. This has also come up or something similar has come up in the past on the show. And I just want to get your input on using the N word during sex play, race play. And usually, almost invariably when that happens and when it's come up on the show, there has been a person of color in the room who wanted that word used. And the white person in the room didn't want to use it, didn't feel comfortable using the N-word 
and didn't want to. What is what is your take on on that conflict? So in the world, as I move through the world as an marginalized individual, you know, prejudice and racism, you know, just come. These are things that, you know, I don't ask for. These are these are things that I don't request by name. These things come without my consent. Mm-hmm. And another aspect of BDSM that is, you know, important to convey is the fact that you can change the narratives of trauma through the use of ethical consent. So in this way, in this way for that person, this is an opportunity for them to control the parameters of, you know, being subject to, you know, that word Mm -hmm. or what that, or what that word means. Um, And I think that it's important to, you know, respect what people consent to, what people enjoy. You know, we have this saying in the BDSM community that your kink is not my kink, but your kink is okay. And, or, or another one being, you know, don't yuck, don't yuck someone's yum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we've all heard that one. And, you know, I think that, I think that can be applied here. You know, there are many, many, many opinions and many, you know, thoughts and feelings um, to this particular um, conversation, especially in my own community. But at the end of the day, we have to let people find pleasure that is good for them, that is ethical. And it's not unethical. No, I, I, I don't. I don't think it is. I think we process a lot of fear and trauma through our erotic imaginations. There is a reason why so many gay men like to be called faggot and degraded for being cocksuckers during sex, consensually with a partner that they've empowered to treat them in that way that they wouldn't tolerate anyone else treating them, but or may have been treated by others in a non-consensual way, and to take that and take control of it and allow for it to serve your own pleasure is kind of this weird double bank shot, double backflip empowerment. You see that with women and ravishment or rape fantasies. Women live every day with the pervasive fear of sexual violence. And a lot of women have fantasies that allow them to step into their worst fears, but be in control of them. And I think that may be similar to, to how you just unpacked the use of the N-word in consensual race play initiated by the person of color in the room. I completely, I completely and totally concur um, and we talk a lot about, you know, reclamation, like a lot of words I personally identify, you know, as queer. And at one point, you know, that that word was <laughs> not a very good um, word. I'm sure you're going to remember mm-hmm. that. I was there. I'm old enough. I was there when we like the, the, the queer community made an active decision to reclaim the word queer. And it, you know, that worked. It triumphed. You know, there's still some older gays and lesbians like my age or a little bit older who are offended by that. But I, I think it's been a terrific word and a very unifying word for the, the broader queer community. It's the term that like brings the gay people who may not see the link between like their experience, the trans experience, the sexual experience, bisexual experience. We are all not straight, not cis. We are all what? We are all queer. And I think it's terrific, but it was an actively reclaimed term. There was a conscious sort of collective decision to do that. Yeah, it was. I want to acknowledge the, you know, individuals that, that came before me, folks who, you know, identifying gay as lesbians and lesbians, who you know, paved the way and prepared the way for me to be able to, you know, proudly say who I am without fear of, you know, 
repercussions in the, in the form of, you know, violence. I think that people and how they feel about, you know, how words are reclaimed, I think those individuals' opinions, I think they matter. I think they absolutely do matter and because, you know, certain words and certain phrases might be associated with trauma for a lot of individuals, which I personally heard expressed by people who identify as um, gay and lesbian who are lesbian who are older than me. Last question about this call. Um, will you <laughs> allow it? People call into advice shows because they want permission. They want the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Again, you don't speak for all people of color, all queer people of color, but can you give this caller permission or would you to feel more comfortable using the term slave in, with her partner? I'm going to say no, and here's why. I think there are lots of ways to identify in BDSM. I think there are you know, many words, many adjectives that you can find and use in BDSM. And I think that it's, it's an opportunity to, to use your imagination and, you know, from bottoms and tops to doms and subs to masters and slaves to actives and passives to givers and receivers. Like, there are many, many, many ways to identify in kink as long as you, like, can strive to, like, do that and uh, create that together. But that's not be you're not denying permission because the word can't be used, but because this caller isn't comfortable using that word and they should get creative. Just so I understand you. Yes, they. I want them to get creative. Can we... Uh hold you and and keep you and, and trouble you to tackle a couple of questions with me? Oh, uh, sure. I'm down. Hi, Dan. 23-year-old cis female um, in a relationship with my partner, my boyfriend, for two and a half years. Um, I just had a question about BDSM and kink. Um, I'm pretty interested in exploring a little bit more kinky, a little bit more BDSM sex. But the thing is, I'm really not into violence. And I don't really think that I'm into power play in terms of like him being like the sole like dominant one. And I, this is funny, but I kind of consider myself a little bit of a pillow princess, not to the point where I don't give, you know, reciprocate pleasure for him because I love doing that for him. So I like when he dominates me in that way and like does what he wants to do to me. But I don't really like violence. I don't like being smacked. I don't like being like like spanked or any of that kind of stuff. And I feel like a lot of BDSM, anytime I try to look for different things to be into, a lot of it has some kind of violent aspect of it. And I would really like to explore new things with my boyfriend, but I don't really think I want to be submissive in that kind of way where it's a little violent, even if it's consensual. And I don't think I want to be spanked a lot or spank him or choking or any of that really stuff. And I know this is kind of surface level, but it feels like anytime I look for new kinks online or look for things or research articles, a lot of the kinks that I find are just kind of a little violent. And I just, it's not something that I'm interested in the bedroom at all. I really, really like being like the sole focus of it. I'm like I said before, I kind of consider myself a little bit of a pillow princess in the case that I like what I like and my boyfriend does what he wants to do to me, but he knows that I love it kind of thing. But I don't really want him dominating me in a way that he's doing what he wants, if that makes any sense. So she wants to get kinky, but seems to think that all the kinks, at least the kinks she stumbled across in her research, involve some degree of violence or power play. Listening to the calls kind of made my head explode uh, and wait till you hear the next call. But listening to this call made my head explode a little bit. She, she seems to have it in her head that, you know, she wants to get kinky. She describes, you know, a kind of 
power exchange light kink play that she would be into, but she feels like it's not enough. Like the things that she's interested in that she's very articulate about fall short of getting kinky and therefore she needs, you know, you and me to give her some advice about how to get kinkier or point her in the direction of some other kinks when it seems to me that she's described a kind of power exchange light kink play that's valid. Yeah, I listening to that, I think that she can she is still able to uh call on aspects of BDSM without, you know, power or violence um being involved. I think that, you know, what we see in media really limits just what is available here. Uh, there is a desire um smorgasbord of different things that you can do within BDSM and at the end of the day you're you know, dynamic or ubedious in relationship is what you make it. As long as you are, you know, adhering to those 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 principles, those those foundations, that that framework that is required to do BDSM ethically, which refers to you know being consent informed, being trauma informed, and so on and so forth. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30 year old pansexual woman calling from Texas, and I have a question about a specific fetish that I'm not sure what to call. Pretty much, I have a murder fetish where me and my male partner seek out couples to have sex with and then murder, and me and my partner fuck in their blood. Even more so, I have a crazy fetish to be a murder victim and have my male partner murder me during sex and dismember my body. Now, I obviously don't want these things to happen in real life ever, but I'm calling to ask you what are some ways me and my partner can simulate these fantasies? I have a fair amount of experience in BDSM, just nothing like this, and Googling has been unsuccessful for me. Also, I'm currently single, and I was wondering how I can attract a partner who is also into these things. I'm not a fan of FetLife, so I usually use Tinder, Bumble, etc. Any advice you could give would be great. Thanks so much. This is challenging my adherence to the principle of your kink is not my kink, but your kink is okay. (laughs) I get it. I've, yeah. I've tackled this question in the past. There are people, I'm surprised there aren't more people considering, you know, the way we fetishize serial killers and Hannibal Lecter and Ted Bundy and, you know, so much of our mass entertainment is about murderers. Uh, I'm surprised there isn't more murder fetishism out there than there is. Uh, but what would your advice be for this person who is on Tinder and Bumble looking for a murder fetishist? I I think that uh, there are things if if we if we're talking about dating apps I think that you got a lot of I think you got a lot of power here to like try to bring what you are looking for into your world through the use of your own profile uh, a lot of profiles that I've been on I've been on almost every app out there and you can you know not just outright be like gratuitous but you can you know say who you are say what you're into say what you're about. I like utilizing photographs because I know that people are prone to primarily looking at photographs when they open up their dating site or they visit someone's profile and just like type text into my photograph and be like, hey, like you should know this thing or, you know, I want you to know this thing. But at the end of the day, like, what if you are a person who has a sensitive job and you can't be on a dating site like that with all the uh, fetishes and <laughs> Whatnot. You, you can't be on a dating site. So, you know, you're a school teacher. You can't be on a dating site talking about how much, how, how you fantasize about bathing in the blood of your victims with your sex partner after going on a killing spree. Might cause problems at work. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. So, in this case, the advice that I would give this person is to get acquainted with their local sex shop. Sex shops tend to be a hub 
we we want to avoid fat life. This person said, um, I believe they say they're not a fan of fat life. So get acquainted with, with your local um, sex shop. And what happens is, is they are usually hung and they know all of the things or they know a guy that knows a guy. And that's how you can learn about, you know, events. You can learn about, you know, different um, parties. You can learn about, you know, lots of lots of happenings at the local sex shop. And one of the one of the things that you probably want to um, try to find out about are munches and munches are, you know, kind of a low pressure way to meet people within the community, like over lunch or dinner. And you can be your be your best kinky self and meet yourself with another individual. And as you you know meet other people within the community, I feel like eventually you'll find your person. You just have to get out there and perhaps gravitating toward the vampire fetishes scene, which exists. And there's people on Twitter and Instagram, or the vor fetish scene. Uh, mm-hmm. It might be a really good idea. You're going to have to constantly emphasize that you are not actually interested in realizing these fantasies <laughs> uh, yeah. because some people might assume otherwise. And the last thing you want is for the person who's in your life who's assumed otherwise, that person to be your sex partner, blacks and non-monogamous, queer, BDSM, educator of color. Follow them on Instagram where they do a tremendous amount of, of really brilliant. I, I have to say it's such an honor and thrill to have you on the show. You do, you do such great kink education. It's so incredibly insightful. I've learned things following you on Instagram. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. Uh, but before I let you go, rubber ducks, you have a rubber duck obsession. What is that? <laughs> I, I have a rubber duck obsession. Rubber ducks have become symbolic uh, of a philo- kind of a philosophy that I um, have in my life, and that is uh, referring to my mental health. And we know that you know rubber ducks float, and uh. you know if I if I if I took a rubber duck, <laughs> if I took a rubber duck, and I and I took a blow the surface of of water, for instance, and when I release it. Uh, how deep that it was down in that water determines how high it will pop up. So referring to my mental health, the further down I push, you know, the, the, the different aspects of my mental health, you know, whether it be, you know, my depression or dealing with anxiety and not like actually dealing with those parts of me, the longer and further down I push it, the higher that it will manifest itself when it eventually comes out inevitably. Oh, that is really touching. And, and I didn't see that coming. I was totally surprised by that answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. Blackson, follow them on Instagram at Kinky Black Educator. Thanks so much. I hope you'll come back. I definitely will. Yeah, hey there, Dan. I kind of hold my voice down, so bear with me. My wife's in the other room. So I'm a um, almost a 60-year-old male. I've been in a monogamous relationship now for the last 35 years. The same wonderful woman in well, uh, tonight was, you know, I decided to go upstairs earlier, earlier than normal. And, um, and well, one thing led to the other. And uh, I, uh, she started giving me um, oral sex. And I finally stopped after, um, I, I, well, after I came seven times. So it's so the well, I guess, well, I guess I really don't have a question. I just uh, figured I'd probably just call up and tell you that. Well, thank you for sharing. I don't know what is rarer, the person who's been married for 35 years, getting a blowjob from the spouse or coming seven times. The multi-orgasmic male is 
very, very rare. I've met a couple of guys who have no refractory period. They have an orgasm. They stay hard. They can immediately have another orgasm. They don't have that fall off in desire. Their dicks don't go soft. But to get to that next orgasm still takes some time. It's not like the next orgasm just rolls in on top of the previous one the way it does for many multi-orgasmic women. So you have remarkable orgasmic capacity about which you should be rightly proud. And one question that I have for you, if the wife was there and the wife gave you this blowjob, why are you whispering about this to me with your wife in the other room? Why are you afraid of your wife overhearing you? Is it that you're calling me to share or is there some other reason you don't want the wife busting you right now? Hi, Dan. Hi, Nancy. I'm an early 30s gay man, married, and recently my husband and I have been dipping our toes into non-monogamy. It's been a slow process that's kind of been unfolding over the last few years, um, more so due to his hesitation as opposed to mine. Things have been going great. Uh, My husband appeared to be enjoying himself with the few three-ways that we've had before, uh, but now I'm starting to think that maybe this isn't the right thing for us. About a week ago, a former hookup of mine came over for some fun. My husband actually set it up on his own and surprised me, and we made a day out of it. We hung out, we drank, we fucked. It was great. I was really enjoying myself, and I felt like there was a ton of energy between the three of us. Sex was fun and relaxed. But afterwards, my husband expressed some concerns that our third was only there because of me, and he felt that it was obvious that he was just the piece on the side. Uh, I will say that the third and I have a great sexual chemistry. Uh, We're both kinky, and we're pretty laissez-faire when it comes to sex. Uh, My husband tends to be more inhibited and reserved, despite my attempts to get him to relax and enjoy himself and realize that, you know, it's fun. But again, I had no idea anything was wrong throughout this entire experience. Uh, When it came to actual intercourse, I asked my husband to hand me a condom, and he said that I didn't have to. Side note, it's our main rule, but I took it as a sign that he was extremely comfortable with him and what we were doing. Few other times that we fooled around with other people, they've usually been out of town. They're unfamiliar to us. It's the first time that we invited one of our past partners into the bedroom. Um, so I'm starting to think that this may not be the right approach moving forward. Since then, my husband's been having problems in the bedroom, erectile difficulties. I try to segue into another activity that doesn't require a hard cock on his part, but he seems just mopey and conflicted afterwards and there's nothing that I can really do to perk him up. I've tried so hard to assure him that sex is just sex and that his emotional well-being is the most important thing to me, but I haven't been able to get through. Uh, I've offered to close down the relationship and let my friend know that while we had fun, we're going to close things down moving forward and that we would keep him in mind in the future. Last side note is uh, I've had one-on-one hookups with guys before with my husband's permission And I've told him all about it when I get home. It really charges things up. And I get this dominant side from him that I just don't normally see. But maybe seeing this in person blew a fuse for him. Have I done something wrong? Is is this just something that's going to pass? Could our problems in bed be related to other stresses in the world? I don't know, Dan. I'm worried I may have stepped on a landmine with this one. And I'm a little scared. Your impulse to shut things back down, to unopen this relationship, to close this relationship back up is absolutely the right impulse. And of course, right now at this time during the COVID-19 crisis, you shouldn't be hooking up with randos 
or third parties anyway. So close it down and make sure your husband knows that the reason you're closing it down is because this is obviously a problem. He's feeling feelings that he's having a difficult time articulating or even hasn't begun to process and you value him and you value your relationship and you value your sexual connection. You regard all those things as of primary value and you're not going to prioritize having some fun outside sex with other guys over your marriage. But when you say this isn't right for us, I'm not sure that's true. It could just be that you got ahead of yourselves, the both of you. Your husband, you didn't do anything wrong. Your husband set up this date, surprised you with this date, with this other guy, with your ex. And your husband was actively participating, even directing the action a little bit. You know, when he said that you two didn't need to use a condom, which wasn't his decision to make. Ultimately, you guys also got to decide whether a condom was right for you in that moment. Obviously, you felt that going bare was right for you in that moment and felt safe. And I support that choice. But your husband wasn't a victim. This wasn't a you know drive-by three-way that sort of happened or, or, or that you arranged with someone that you have this intense sexual connection with without taking into consideration how he might feel witnessing that. He set it up and he witnessed an intense sexual connection. And I think your husband has already said how it made him feel. He felt like the third was only there because of you and was really only into you and wouldn't have come over just to play with him. And the trick, the difficult part here emotionally is that all of that is probably true and your husband needs to accept that and you need to acknowledge that that is probably the case and it is often the case when a couple has a three-way that the person they're having that three-way with is very likely more attracted to one person than the other person. That's just built into the three-way. And if that is something that is, you know, if you project yourself into that moment and that's too bruising to your ego to consider that you may be having a sexual encounter with someone that's very pleasurable and, and that you're enjoying it, they're enjoying, but that person that you're having as a couple, that person you two are having a sexual encounter with is more into you or more into him if that's something that you can't handle, then you shouldn't have three-ways as a couple. You know, I often say to people who want to have their first three-way that there are moments in all three-ways when it becomes a two-way and one person is watching. And if you can't handle that, if you know your rule for a three-way is that it always has to be a, an equal tangle of limbs, equal bowls of ice cream as if your mom came into the room and divided up the attraction and desire and orgasm and passion and made sure it you know perfectly measured and and weighed out don't have three ways you're obviously not right for three ways but if you can enjoy someone else's pleasure in your partner if you can enjoy somebody else being really into your partner if your partner can enjoy someone being really into you and bask in that glow yeah you can have three ways as a couple and they'll be great because you won't be butthurt by this thing that you have to expect will be a part of most or all three ways that you have as a couple, which is a certain, you know, unbalance in, <laughs> on the desire scales. You need to unpack this with your husband. Some of what you'd been doing in the past was working. When you had your solo sexual encounters and you would come home and tell your husband about them, that turned him on and he enjoyed hearing about other guys being really into you. Being in the same room with another guy who is really into you and more into you than him, that obviously didn't work for him. Maybe saying, we're going to take that off the table. We're not going to make that mistake again. Maybe having a rule that you don't hook up with exes. You don't hook up with people that you've 
have an established sexual chemistry with going forward will make your husband more comfortable. But right now, it sounds like when you two are trying to have sex, he is still working through all of this and still thinking about it and obsessing about it and still hurt. And so you're going to have to talk this stuff out before the sex can start to work again, before he feels confident being intimate with you again. Have to dump praise and affirmation all over him while parsing out what was and wasn't working about your open relationship during this stage when you have shut it back down. And then maybe when you figure out what it is that works and works for both of you, you can get back to opening it up. Not all the way or not as wide open as it was before, but opening it up to an extent, you know, cracking it open in a way that works for him too. Hey Dan, about a month ago, I was sitting with this guy and I had been pretty clear about not having him come inside me. And the last night that we had sex, um, he did. I was kind of upset about it. And he left. And the next day I texted him saying, I need someone who's more understanding and considerate. And I don't want to see you anymore. But I was kind of annoyed. I still am kind of annoyed, obviously. So I'm calling. But I talked to one of my friends who works in like law enforcement And he said that he's had people go to jail for up to a year because that's considered sexual assault. And I don't necessarily feel like I've been assaulted. I'm really just like pissed off about the whole thing. And like, I don't know how to get men to realize that they can't just do whatever they want. But like, I'm trying to figure out like what I want. Like, I don't really think this guy needs to go to jail. I don't really want like money from him. I don't want like civil court, criminal court. Like, I don't really know what I want, but I have this kind of just, pissed off anger about it and I don't really know what to do. It sucks that that guy did that, violated you in that way, violated the trust you'd placed in him and you told him so. You dumped him for this reason and you made it clear that this was the reason you weren't going to be fucking him anymore. You didn't feel safe with him. He violated you and it was a consent violation and a serious one and you sent him packing. You're still angry about it. You have every right to still be angry about it. I don't think involving law enforcement is a realistic option. You say your friend tells you that people have gone to jail for a year for doing this. I find that hard to believe. I think if people were regular, men men do this a lot. I think if men were regularly going to jail for this, maybe fewer men would do it and that would be awesome. But this happens so routinely that I imagine if guys are getting arrested for it and thrown in jail, we would be reading about that all the time. So I don't know if your friend the cop told you something that they thought it might be comforting for you to hear that wasn't entirely true and there were other circumstances involved where these sorts of violations took place and guys wound up in jail for a year. But I don't think involving law enforcement or a civil suit is is realistic. I think what you've already done is just about as much as you can do. If it would be helpful for you to blow up at this guy again and to let him know how angry you are still and that the impact of this violation was so severe that you are still in some ways reeling from it. It would help you to burden him with that knowledge and you think he might take that in and it might change how he behaves, then go for it. Get him on the phone, scream and yell at him, let it out, vent. If anyone ever comes to you, if your friends ever start dating this guy, absolutely let them know. That's not a whisper network. That's social accountability. And we shall be held socially accountable for our actions. 
sexually, even if we can't always be held socially accountable for our actions, criminally, even if a violation doesn't always meet that threshold for criminal prosecution, if you have violated someone, they have a right to speak of their experience and they have a right to warn others, particularly friends, that you are someone who can't be trusted. So take it out on him in those ways. Call him, scream and yell at him. Let him know that you are still angry. And if he's part of your social circle or find his way back into your social circle somehow, speak up. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Emily Ann tweets, since calendars are pretty much meaningless nowadays, I use the Savage Lovecast as a way to mark the passage of time, as in, thank God it's Tuesday, there's a new Lovecast. And how many days has it been since I listened to the Savage Lovecast last? Glad we can help you keep track of time, Emily Ann. And if you want Tuesday to come more often, you can subscribe to the Savage Lovecast. Become a Magnum subscriber at SavageLovecast.com. And it gives you access to all 14 years worth of Savage Lovecasts. Every day can be Tuesday. Siobhan Nicole tweets, catching up on my podcast today. And Dan Savage just called God Sky Daddy. And now I am dead. Sorry about your... Death, Siobhan. And finally, AVN award-winning porn performer, producer, and director, Sin Sage tweets, do not ever put sugar in your vagina. Yeast loves sugar, and they will get hideous yeast infections if they put actual sugar in their vaginas. I did a movie where a cupcake got shoved in my ass, and the yeast infection was the worst ever. Okay, okay, Sage. I will take your advice. I will not put sugar in my vagina. I promise. And I will use a stunt double anytime a scene calls for someone to shove a cupcake up my ass, which frankly to me seems like a waste of both cupcake and ass, but kinks are mysteries and pleasure is subjective. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 20s bisexual married female. Um, I'm actually just calling to respond to the gentleman who's married to the military member. Yeah, I'm military. I've been deployed. When I was gone last, my wife and I, who is also bisexual, decided that we would, when I get back, talk more about opening up our marriage. And yeah, we have a boyfriend now. And whenever I leave for any period of time, it's been really nice for her to have him around. And recently it's escalated. He's moved in with us. I guess my feedback for the caller is that if his husband is not willing to meet him halfway, then there's some tough decisions he has to make. I went from being full-time to a reservist, and now I get to live my dream job, still be in the military, and still have my family. Whereas if I stayed active duty, I could have lost one or the other. So my advice is to talk to him about the reserves in the guard. If he wants to keep his marriage alive, he might have to do part-time military so he can have a full-time husband. Hi, uh, I'm calling about the woman whose boyfriend is jacking off but not having sex with her. Dan, I think you hit a lot of the right points, but maybe with the wrong emphasis. I really think that this boyfriend is just depressed. Like, he just got laid off. None of us have the same coping mechanisms available to us during coronavirus. You know, you two are still having sex twice a week. Like, I think that you still have a sexual connection. I don't think that he's lost his sexual attraction for you. I think that he's just feeling really shitty right now. And if you can approach him with compassion, try to just explain why you're frustrated 
and try to understand where he's coming from and what has been motivating that behavior, I think that everything will be just fine. Hey, Dan, love the show. This is a response to the caller in episode 708, who's going through her conference calls in the morning, knowing her lazy boyfriend is wasting his boner on himself. So my advice is that you need to beat him at his own game. So what I would do, wake up half an hour earlier, get out your vibrator, you know, even turn your ass around so that he has a good view of your pussy and just go at it. He is going to wake up. He may have a surge of energy and fuck you. But I think at the very least, his morning wank is going to turn into mutual masturbation, which is so hot and uh, a really nice way for anybody to start the day. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to call us with a question or a comment, 206-302-2064. You are invited to join me and Nancy for a special Savage Love live stream on Thursday, June 4th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. You can send your written questions to livestream at savagelovecast.com. If you send your question ahead of time, you'll have a better chance of me answering it live during the event. But you can also ask questions in the chat feature live during the live stream and I will get to and answer as many of your questions as I can in one fun filmed Zoom meeting. Tickets are 10 bucks. Get them at savagelovecast.com slash events. All proceeds from the show are going to be donated to a beloved food bank network here in Seattle. Again, go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get your ticket to the live stream coming up on June 4th. You still have a few more chances to see the 15th annual Hump Film Festival online? Get your tickets at humpfilmfest.com. Get your tickets to the Confinement Online Film Festival. You will be treated to an incredible range of short films. Some are funny, some are wild, some are really poignant. All of them adventures in our current state of lockdown. Go to thestranger.com slash C-O-F-F to find out more and get your tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Blackson on Twitter at Blackson. That's at B-L-A-K-S-Y-N. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me in the tech city at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll both be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for that.